out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the photographer, Julia Gorton, who's recently put together an amazing book titled Nowhere New York, Dark, Insulting and Unmelodic. It's it's a photographic book, as the title says, of New York and the kind of basic underground scene. Punk scene, post-punk scene, with lots of phenomenal photographs, which are so evocative, it will blow your mind. An amazing um, work, so do check it out. I will give you the link of how to buy it in the notes below. But this is the interview, so after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that really was the, uh, yes, that combination of how one gets into becoming a photographer. Anyway, Julia's going to tell us everything. Tell us now, Julia. I guess I think when I think back about music, um, I I got to the glam rock a little bit later, and I started with um, Elton John and uh, Rod Stewart, and those were sort of the you know the gateway for me, and um, uh, you know that quickly that quickly changed when uh, I got a boyfriend in high school. Um, named Rick Brown and I you know he was a real and still is a real you know music musician music lover and uh, you know I think the time was such that there were a lot of trips to record stores and you know we quickly found like Bowie and Lou Reed Velvet Underground Roxy Music and all that you know sort of glamorous uh, pre-punk kind of music and um you know, at the same time, or you know, not long after that, I I got a camera f- through my um, one of my teachers that was uh, uh, my my boss at after school rec program said, "Buy this camera, I've got it. It's a rangefinder. It's twenty dollars." I'm like, "Okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll teach you how to use it. My friend will let you use the yearbook darkroom." I'm like, "Okay," and so that was that was the beginning of that and. You know, I think that influence of, um, you know, glam and Bowie and all that, there was a lot of, you know, dress up and things like that, that started pretty early. Yes. Were you you based in New York at this stage? Oh, no, I was based in Delaware. Delaware is, um, it's, you know, two hours by train south of New York. It's near Philadelphia, which is Mm -hmm. a really great, great city with great, great um, independent record, um, independent radio station called WMMR and uh you know so it was easy to kind of uh you know live in Delaware and have your you know group of friends that were interested in you know music and movie making and uh art making and you know make a make a step up to Philadelphia sort of for concerts and shopping and things like that and then go to New York Right. Yes. Because one thing that's kind of boggling, because I've done quite a few interviews with people like, I suppose it's Terry O'Neill, then it was like, um, what's his other name? Kevin Cummins from the UK, and then also Bob Gruen. I mean, what's always kind of boggling is just like, 
just capturing sort of these amazing moments because the world is full of sort of very grainy shots that people have discovered or rediscovered that they took in their kind of 70s and 80s and they think oh, that's not great but I've I've noticed with a lot of um, the Americans and it was because there was quite a few books that came out last year he says looking to the left there was one on Texas Texas for the reason there was another one called When Midnight Comes Around by Gary Green who captured you know that CBGB's and yourself but you've You've, your confidence with the camera and the lens and the people is just stunning, you know. So I just wondered how that that developed because they're not kind of shy photographs, and these are quite extreme characters, aren't they? Oh, it's a you know, it's a really interesting relationship between the photographer and the subject, and uh, you know that idea of of confidence is like I sorry I didn't have it. I, I was super shy and I would say, you know, socially pretty awkward. And um, I don't think I appeared like that to people, you know. And so I think they, they had an idea that I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so when I when I look back at the pictures, you know, obviously, yeah, I I had an idea what I was looking for in the subject. And um it's easier for me now to see how different kinds of things influence that and come through in my work. But I really wasn't able to become, you know, the kind of photographer that inspired me. I became something else, you know, and I think it's equally interesting and valid. But um, I loved, uh, you know, 50s. 40s, 50s horror films and 30s, uh, you know, deco musicals and um, photographers like uh, Avedon and William Klein and Helmut Newton. And I just did my best. I tried really, really hard to like copy that kind of work. George Harrell, the Hollywood portrait photographer. Um, and I just winged it. You know, it was a real DIY kind of time. And I had very limited experience and equipment and technical knowledge. And I just, I went for it. I mean, yes. interesting projects. Well, yeah, but I suppose what's what's always kind of interesting, and I remember it was Kevin Cummings who did these ones of the Sex Pistols who did a gig on, I don't know, Christmas Day 1977. I mean, that book's only just come out, and you're thinking, well, that's quite a few decades. Is it the case when you were taking these pictures that you were just thinking, well, this is a nice hobby, but frankly, no one's going to be even thinking about these kind of characters, let alone the music in five years' time, let alone in... 40 years time because it's kind of because because that's the thing the photographs are beautiful and then the people themselves we we kind of realize what they became oh. as well so there's kind of an interesting relationship isn't it oh sure you know I think that um I was right you know I was right there in the moment and so it was you know when you're shooting it's really exciting because you you go out you you take you know you do some work you're not sure exactly what you've captured you know you go back and develop and process and look at it and you know i mean a lot of times it's like oh i missed that and oh that's a little bit too close to the edge and you know this idea of what you think you're looking for like i had an idea of like well this the, the image should, should look like this and so there were certain ones that that i knew like oh that that's that's an image that captures you know somebody at the right moment in the right place with the right lighting with the right 
things around it with a dynamic kind of composition. Most of them don't do that. Most of them are off and they're, you know, the background falls off or you see like a table leg in the background or, you know, the clothing is a little wrinkly or something. And, you know, so at the time you're, for myself, um, I was filled with like, oh, why can't I be better at this? And so I kept shooting a lot and um, I ended up with a lot of work that I could then go back through. Yes. Uh, you know, not- going back through, it's really interesting because at the time, like I knew I really, it mattered to me. And um, I knew I really liked the work still five years later and 10 years later. And, you know, I never really thought like, I think when you're doing work, you have to not think too much about pleasing somebody else. Like you're trying to please yourself with the images you're making and the kind of work you're developing. Yes. And so it still worked for me. Like I'm like, I still like this work. I think it's good. And um, it was when other people started liking it again that I thought, oh, let me review it and look at it and start to pull stuff out of it. And, all of a sudden, you know, those those like 10 images that you thought were really, really great. They're, you know, they're, they're great in a certain way. But then there are other ones that are like smudged or scratched or, you know, somebody's a little, their eyes are kind of shut. But like, oh, those are kind of good, too. Like, huh. <laughs> tells, you know, it tells a broader story. It's not, you know, of course, it's curated, the whole thing. But it's not, it's curated and edited, but it's. It's not silenced in areas, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. It's been, you know, it's been beautifully designed and put together. When did you sort of? You obviously stored and and kept the the negatives, you know, in a very good shoebox under the bed somewhere, which was good. Did you did you sort of? When did you, that moment come when you thought I really need to get this properly archived and and to bring it out into the world because the public need to see this now. It's really funny how things kind of like, you know, at a certain point you get older and you're just like, wait a minute, do I know everybody? Does everybody know everybody? Are we all like, how are we all connected? Because it seems like many, many people, you know, sort of circle through your life in different ways and they know different people and and things come together. So um Many, many years ago, I lived in the city and I worked as a children's book illustrator. And um, our editor, um, we knew in New York. And at a certain point, he moved down the street from us in the suburbs. And we became friendlier. And uh, he worked at Abrams. And so at a certain point, like, I think a lot of people didn't have any idea really who I was outside of illustration world. And so he... um, came over for dinner and we were talking about something and he was talking about this CBGB's book that his editor, uh, Tamar was working on. And I'm like, Hey, I have, I have some CBGB's pictures. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I was like a photographer. He said, really? And so he, um, connected me with Tamar and Tamar was working on a book with Byron Coley and, um, uh, uh, Thurston Moore. And so I went in with a little suitcase full of pictures and showed them to Tamar and she was super excited about it. And then I got involved in that book and that book was uh, 2000, 
seven or eight right. like that. And so I had to go back and like, oh my gosh, where are my pictures? We moved from the city to the suburbs. Where are my pictures of Lydia Lunch? I have no idea. <laughs> and I found them out in the garage, in the in the attic of the garage. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm glad they're there. Yes. And um but I got I got someone to help me in 2013 start to just try to get the negatives with the contact sheets, you know, and um, it started then 10 years ago, really. Wow. I was, I was going to, in my head, I was thinking, oh, I was probably five at 10. Yes. That's quite something, isn't it? And, and, and also, you know, you, you had, you know, you suddenly, did you feel like suddenly you had a bit of responsibility with these kind of photographs? You know, one can never go back to these times and they are so ephemeral, you know, at the moment, you know, when you're going out and doing these things, it always just feels very common. And why are you taking a picture? Because, you know, we live in it. You don't need to worry about it. It's not, it's always going to be here, but things change so quickly, don't you? It changed right away. I mean, it was amazing how quickly things shifted. And I think you're you're right in um, talking about responsibility because, um, you know, I people people have said to me like, "Oh, did you know the pictures were important?" And I think I think that's an uh, it's an odd word in that it implies or suggests that you know there's there's an audience that you're trying to. I don't know, please, or do something for, and um, I felt like they were always important to me. So that was the first thing. They're important to me. And then when I realized like, oh, they're actually like, they're important to the people that are in the pictures, like in regards to uh, making sure that people know who these people are. Um, I felt like I did feel that was a big responsibility that I had. And, you know, as I got older and older, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to what if I don't get this project finished? And so I made a list and put it in my drawer for my husband. Like, OK, these are the people to contact. And here's my passcode for my computer. And, you know, I really felt like time was ticking and it was important to get these these voices heard. And so, you know, I also was increasingly frustrated by sort of the lack of breadth of who was represented as, first of all, as photographers, it was the same people again and again, great people, great images, same subjects again and again and again. And I thought, you know, um, I started an Instagram and I thought, let me just start with this like weird photo booth picture of myself from high school and see if anybody responds to it. And people responded. I'm like, Hey, that's like a photo booth picture from 11th grade. Come on. And so I put up, I put up pictures to lure people in of, you know, the names like Debbie Harry and Patty Smith and Tom Berlane. And then I would put in like somebody else that, that people had never heard of. And I thought it's my job to get them out there, get their names known and have their face be part of this, you know, world. So yes. I, I was really happy that, you know, I used it as a play space to kind of try different, you know, let me see if anybody likes this or what about that? I think it's quite interesting because because we we have, you know, I suppose there's kind of sim simplified narratives, aren't there, especially with different scenes. And then, you know, someone tells that story 
but then and that becomes it and then somebody else has oh well actually there's also this layer and there's this story and I think that's why a lot of these kind of books that have come out and your book as well is so important because it it kind of gives another flavor because otherwise you know this period which is probably you know one would refer to as punk you know it's kind of a simple story would be oh there's the sex pistols the clash or there's the ramones there's this but then there's all these other layers and i i suppose from the uk the 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 punk scene in in america and, and new york is so different you know when i've been kind of interviewing a lot of bands from that period it's like oh that's quite a different scene there's a lot of different bands there's a lot of different kind of artists it's not quite the same is it you know there's this artistic quality there's a there's a kind of a gay quality there's kind of different aspects there's it's the sound is quite different you've got that kind of record label called z records which has got this kind of interest and style then you've got the people like the stray cats and the rock cats with this kind of rockabilly sound and then you get these poets and lydia and then you get the mumps and then you know and you, it just um, kind of like yeah. unfolds and, uh, you, think, and you, just gave me, you gave me chills mentioning the mumps because i think that um they were just like one of my favorite bands and i was you know i was and still am friends with christian hoffman and he's, he's like the funniest cleverest wittiest you know i'm just waiting for a book from him to come out and so he has that a a pretty long piece that he wrote for me that's just like it's just popping with this kind of like alive crazy vitality and um it's like watching the screwball comedy version of 70s like decay and um so you had a band like the mumps who had a great um pop pop sound playing you know almost like on the same stage maybe the next night um after the ramones or a band that did have sort of an art poet um avant-garde point of view you know there are so many different influences i think the moms should be much better well known than they are I know. Well, I've, I've I've done a few interviews with Christian, so and that oh, was yeah. a, that, that was a, that was a delightful hour of my life. You know, you can imagine, oh, yeah. can you? So when you when you when you sort of went downtown to CBGBs, these are all are they all taken in CBGBs? These pictures, by the way. Oh, they're all over the place. So it's it's primarily downtown. You know, I think that one of the things that that people would say, like, oh, I never go above Fourteenth Street. You know, and so you know, so much was happening downtown and. And I think about it, I'm like, well, no, I did go above 14th Street. I went, you know, the 14th is a major, like, shopping street that goes all the way across Manhattan. And it has a lot, a lot of buses and, you know, people hustling all over the place. It was really, really um, interesting. But, I, you know, up into 23rd Street, it was like Chelsea and there were clubs up there and, um, you know, film houses. And, you know, so we... We were primarily downtown, and the pictures were primarily taken at a number of different places. But it might have been, you know, CBGBs, Max's Kansas City, um, the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club. There were a lot of uh, different kinds of loft parties and loft spaces. One of the pictures I have is, uh, you know, I have these memories and so you know the memories are really um the photos are prompts for the memories and trying to remember like 
where was that place where everyone was peeing in a trash can? Like, what what was that party that was so crowded? Oh, and then I go through my pictures. It's like, it's this one where the screamers came in from L.A. And they're at a loft somewhere on Broadway, downtown. <laughs> and um, it was so crowded. And where was that? And then so I post it. And... People say, oh, that's Ido, Ido's loft. He and Maripol, the photographer, were partners, and that was his place. And when I go back and I look at retouching it, I'm looking at the audience, and I think, oh, I know him now. You know, <laughs> 40 years later, I know this guy in the audience. And, oh, I recognize that guy. And so it's, um, you know, downtown was a really empty space, but there was so much happening. Yes. And so can you remember that first time when you thought, actually, I'm going out, oh, actually, I'll just get my camera. I mean, was that was it was there a moment like that? Rather than just going, I'm going out, money, keys, hanky, dental floss. Oh no, I'll pick my camera up as well. I just wondered if there was a kind of a yeah, uh, I don't know if they got dental floss back then, but um, you know, yeah. it can be quite useful. Um, yeah, so did, what what was that kind of moment? Can you kind of vaguely remember? The, the kind of the relationship with that. I mean, I did take my camera out, you know, in high school, I was taking it out. So, um, and I had a variety of different cameras. So I had like the rangefinder, and then I had my dad's like box camera. And um, I just came across in my files, um, some scans and some pictures I took of my friends. Um, with the bigger camera, it was like, you know, I want to do a zine called like, Delaware boys or something because it's just like my friends leaning against their cars and mm -hmm. that's it I think oh my gosh you know 40 years later 50 years later that's like a moment that's a whole thing in this like really laid back kind of portrait and I'd like to do something with those so I had my camera with me all the time and photographed my friends in high school Did so you when have I go ahead I was gonna did you have that sense that that moment was so brief you know even back then when you took those pictures of those you know your friends standing against the wall did you did, I just wonder if you were a slightly romantic melancholic person who just thought god you know one day we're going to look back at this and I've got to take that yeah I think that when I was you know 16 to 25 it was just such a struggle you know in a way to identify the things you're interested in and figure out how to do them and, you know, have a boyfriend, have fights with a boyfriend, make up with a boyfriend, you know, have money, don't have money. Like there's so many, you know, times that are challenging then. And photography was just a really great, like super sharp focus. Like I was really engaged with like my job. Um, I think that one thing I realized is that a camera is like a like a calling card. You know, when you have it, you immediately identify to other people what your role is in a situation. And so if you're somewhat socially awkward or shy, um, a camera it gives you, um, it made me, you know, it's like walking around with a dagger. I felt a little like, you know, swaggery and I felt more confident in a way because my relationship to someone was to document them and their job was to pose. So I met a lot of people that way and 
um, that became friends. Um, so it worked really well, you know, and yes. I got the pair at the same time. So did you say, I mean, when, when you went up for the first few bands and you said, can I take a picture? Would you, you know, were you feeling like, oh, my God, if they say no, I'm just going to run? Or did you have a swagger at that point of like, what happens if they just say, no, go away? What do you want to do? You know, I just. It's really hard to know how other people see you. Right. So. um, I think I pretended to have a swagger. I don't think I did, but I think I had enough of it. Somehow I appeared self-confident enough that people said yes. And so, and I also was polite and nice. And um, so, you know, I think that in a way you have, as a photographer, you have to know how to push yourself out there. At the same time, you have to know how to be small in a certain way and invisible in a certain way. So it is, uh, you know, when, when I've been going back and looking at these pictures, I've also been looking at, you know, everybody else's pictures that they're posting. And I kept waiting to see, like, I was at that concert. How come I'm not at the side of the stage? I know I was there in this audience. Where am I? Like, I really seem to be invisible. Like, just nobody had taken pictures of me working at all. Until finally, you know, um, Bobby Grossman said, oh, I remember you. I took a picture of you and I thought, Oh, and the picture, you know, it, the whole scene starts to just like trickle back. Like I remember him. I remember where he was standing at CBGB's. I remember chatting. I remember him taking my picture and then, wow, there's the picture. There it is. You know, and I'm like, Oh, I look kind of sweaty and pudgy. So huh, <laughs> it's not the glamour shot I had hoped. Um, and then David David Godlitz had a picture of me sitting in the audience at a Dead Boys concert. And so, you know, I was shy and I didn't really talk to David and I didn't really talk to Bobby and I didn't talk to Roberta. And I most certainly did not talk to Bob Brune and Septi Chernikowski. Like, oh, I just didn't talk to them. I did not talk to them. I was like, I'll do my thing. Yes, absolutely. On On the book, what period is this actually running from and until it's it's pretty much 76 to 80 and so they're they're probably um they're probably you know it might it might go to 81 and then there might be you know i looked at this so much when i was working on it that um i don't even feel like i need to look at it but i kind of forget what's even in it (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's just like so. I, at one point, you know, I had I had a bunch of pictures from Delaware in there as sort of creating a, you know, a different kind of urban landscape and suburban landscape that um, that these sort of sprung from. But they ended up not being in the final edit. And sometimes I'll look at a picture like there's a picture of me where I photograph myself um, in a dressing room window, uh, like a dressing room window. At, dressing room mirror and um like that that may be delaware but but my hair and glasses are more like 1980 so what was i doing where was i you know and so you know some of them uh, they were dated on the back on the contact sheet and others are just like you know it's a little bit of a mystery trying to identify things yes 
I would imagine it's been it's been a fascinating pro- process. Was it quite nice also collaborate not collaborating but having people contributing to the book? Yeah. Did it feel like you'd created this nice kind of sense of you know community, not complete completion, you know, but sort of saying, God, this is what we did 40, 40 plus years ago, and sort of being able to sort of make those contacts with people. So when you know, so you talk about responsibility of a project like this and the responsibility of these images and sort of what my intent is with the book and um, my thoughts were really to create a, a window in or a time capsule or a not uh, like a, a a group a group picture of this time and by asking many different people to contribute writing. Things. And I would give them a prompt, like, can you write about being a photographer then? Or can you write about maybe DJing? Or what was it like when you were hanging out at Tier 3? And so there are very personal uh, remembrances um, written by people that aren't necessarily writers uh, as their primary occupation. So I think they have a kind of honesty and directness that... Um, is really important to me. And so when all the voices come together, I look at the book and I'm like, this is our yearbook. This is like, uh, this is our book. And so, you know, if, if only, if it was only done for me and for them, I would feel satisfied, right? That I had created something to get back to the people that gave so much to me then and with their writing contributions. I just hope that it can go out into the world and people will get a sense of like, here is this way of approaching music and art and photography. And, you know, in the periphery, there's uh, theater and film and performance and writing and poetry and, you know, all these different kinds of creative practices. And um, there, there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a roadmap for how to do this. Like we, figured it out on our own. And um, I think that that's the thing that will probably create the most like evocative and nostalgic response from readers that, that weren't there. Like, yes. oh, we missed it. Why weren't we there? And my students used to say, I wish I was there then. And I'd be like, now you'd be 60. So, you know, like make this happen for yourself now in some way. Make a scene. And so, you know, it's interesting because um, it's, it's um, you know, like, how does that happen? You know, how does a community come together around a kind of punk point of view? And I found that at 309 Punk Project in Pensacola, where I did a residency. And they really, like, they have a community. And it's it's a broad age um a uh, very inclusive uh, group. They come out for all the events. There's, you know, there's film, there's music, there's poetry readings, there's art. I did a photo, photo pop up there. Um, I think if you want it, you have to do it because nobody is going to do it for you. No. And also, and I think with that, no, at the time, you know, I was a little bit, um, I was more of an indie kid from the 80s. I mean, at the time, I, I didn't sort of think, wow, this is all so special. We're going to be remembering this. You know, it was just like what 
was happening and where I was going and listening to, you know, the John Peel show, you know, getting the music papers, listening to these bands. The older generation thought it sounded rubbish and it wasn't yeah. proper music, you know, but I was like, oh, no, this is brilliant. I'm really loving it. And now, you know, those stories from that period, the 80s, the early 80s, are being told, you know, through film, books, a bit like that, you know, and documentaries. But at the time, it's like, no, it wasn't, you know, we 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 didn't, we weren't pattern, we weren't happy chappies. We were all moaning about unemployment, the sort of in, inequality of life, the, you know, the, we all yeah. thought we were going to die of a nuclear war. There was Chernobyl in, in 86. Yeah, too yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and we and we but we you know we did have good music that we liked then and you know I listen to now oh, yes, you know it does sound good now actually and there's other bands that I missed then that I listened to that I think actually that's quite good I'm I'm kind of happy discovering bands that I missed back then because actually you didn't have that access to everything all the time you just had to get something you know and it was quite a struggle you know so it was a very different scene I think the music papers were really important, you know, to be able to read The Voice or um, Trouser Press or NME, or I think there was something called Sounds. Yeah, Sounds Melody Maker, NME. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so to read those, and it was sort of like you're reading about music. You're not hearing it. So you read the review, and it's so important thinking about uh you know, it, it creates, the review creates something that you then want to hear. And so, you know, looking at all the, you know, we relied very much on the the record buyers at these small shops to bring in music based on their interests and then expose it to us. So for, for me, you know, when I was in college, um, uh, my boyfriend and I, we would go after dinner always across A Street. And A Street had this great store called Disco File. And they were known primarily as a like a classical, classical record store. But Michael Sorrells, who was one of the shop guys, he was also into the whole, you know, no wave, new wave scene, uh, everything coming out of England. So we would go in there every single night, like every night we would do this loop that would go by Discofile and we'd, we'd say, Michael, what do you have that's new? And he would have, you know, some imports that came from England um, and we would just buy them. We didn't know what they were. You're like, this looks like, maybe I've heard of this or the cover's cool or, you know, I've got $3 in my pocket and I'll buy it. And so, you know, I have a great collection of 45s from them then. Excellent. <laughs> but because of him. Because yes. of this one record guy. Who who curated it so beautifully. Yeah, no, it's interesting that that kind of world because, you know, it was very different then, wasn't it? You had to put some legwork in and some interaction in in a shop. But isn't um, the legwork fun? I mean Absolutely. Was, I mean, when I was in um uh when I was in high school and then early college. Uh, I worked for this guy, Tom Watkins, who ran a costume shop in downtown Wilmington. And uh, he ended up doing some work for um, the filmmaker, John Waters. And so it was like a quirky Delaware arty guy. And I got to be his assistant. But at lunchtime, I would go out and I would do the loop. It would be the Ninth Street, um, uh, you know, resale shop and the the Salvation Army and the Goodwill down in the not so great neighborhood. And I would find these interesting 
um, like soul, funk, uh, pre-disco records on labels I'd never heard of uh, out of Philly, which was the, you know, Philly and Baltimore. Yes. So I had a great collection of just, you know, Motown and then not Motown type stuff. And, uh, you know, so at one point there's the punk no wave sounds you're listening to, but there's also many other influences that are feeding into, you know, what your music um, library is. Yes, I know. It's great to to build it. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out, even if that person ignored it, you know, any little kind of top tips or um, I don't know, you know, a bit of wisdom. But, you know, is there anything that you would have said that you would have thought, yeah, that would have been really handy. But, you know, that's life, isn't it? Oh, sure. You know, I think that I would just say, like, just don't be so fearful. Because I think, and don't, and don't be lazy, like you're going to have to work hard to get something. So for me, I'm like, oh, why didn't I talk to so-and-so a little bit more? Oh, obviously, you know, people were nice. And I asked so-and-so to take their clothes off and they did. Why didn't I to ask everyone to take their clothes off, you know? So what, what were the things that, like, I stopped here? I didn't talk to certain people because they were... Um, they were too famous or, you know, they had a record label deal already or or they um, they were like a little, little older than me. And so I think, you know, looking back, none of that matters. And I wish I had just been, uh, you know, it's okay if people say no to you. Yes. You know? and most people didn't say no to me. I just didn't ask. So. I know. <laughs> it's tricky isn't it yes did you I mean I was just thinking about that you know that time when you were taking pictures I know there's a Robert Maplethorpe was taking some quite extraordinary photographs of various young men bands you know with their tops yeah. off did you did you sometimes see those photographs because there was one from a, a band called the the um straight not the stray cats the rock cats and oh, there was right. a guy called smutty smith and there's oh, this yeah. famous picture of him you know with his tattoos from england he was a he'd be he'd come over with lee black childers i mean when you did you see did you were you looking at other people's photographs at this stage thinking i saw i saw robert's picture of patty on the record um horses and i thought it was just like well you know i'd I loved the way the whole thing looked, but I think I loved the way she looked more than the way I loved the photograph. I, you know, so it was like, she was so compelling and interesting. And that record was just great. And unlike anything I'd heard. So, you know, when I look back now, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a Robert Mablethorpe photo. And isn't that cool? And, you know, look, she's, I think she's brushing her teeth on the back and that's kind of weird. And um, so I knew him as a name. And then there was a show of his, uh, I want to say like at the kitchen or somewhere downtown. And it had a lot of the pictures that caused an uproar that were um, really um, uh, direct and um, uh, sometimes brutal seeming nudes and self-portraits. And so, you know, his work I still don't know how I feel about his work to this day because he had a very mm, flat kind of classic approach to portraiture. And um, I wasn't really a fan of his. 
uh, I knew David's work. I thought, you know, David Goss's work was great. Um, a lot of, a lot of what I saw, I couldn't really understand. Like I would look at it and go like, why is it so soft? Why is it kind of blurry? Doesn't he want it to be sharper than that? You know, not understanding that it was a whole kind of point of view. Yes. And, uh, so I liked, you know, there were other photographers that um, were shooting the scene. They were a little more, I would say, documentary than I was. I was into, you know, the sort of glamorous, sexy kind of portraiture. Um, yes. And I look at my own work and I'm like, I'm not really sure how someone else would describe it as a body of work. It it doesn't have like one one thing, I think, that identifies it. I guess we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But no, I, I mean, to be honest, I think they're just stunning. I think the book is a work of art. So I'm so, I'm so, you know, grateful that you've done it because um, for us people out here, you know, it's just lovely. And you just think, oh, I'm so pleased, you know, another great documentary and a great sort of, uh, yeah, capture such a time. But, you know, the photographs are so evocative. I do, you know, can spend ages looking back again, going, I just look at that photograph. That, you know, there's a lot going on because obviously, I don't know if it's obvious, but, you know, you probably concentrate on that person there, but there's these things in the background as well that, you know, you're thinking, oh, that's so interesting, oh, that decor, that person. Yeah. Speaking of things in the background. So, you know, I took these pictures. There was one really great party I went to. And it was at Squat Theater. And it was after James James Chance show. Um, and I went to the after party upstairs. And it was quite the cast of characters, you know. So it was all like the interesting New York people that I knew, including like Debbie Harry and um, Chris Stein. And, it had, uh, and Glenn Matlock was there. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a sex festival, you know. And um, oh, there are all these people at this party. Um, and so I went, I've gone back and forth to the contact sheet again and again, just like, who are these people? You know, so occasionally I'll, I'll post a picture, like, who is this? And, you know, people say, oh, that's so-and-so from uh, this band. And, you know, you're, I've been working with these contact sheets for years. I've looked at these contact sheets with a loop every single frame. Oh, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, I start chatting with this guy. He's a drummer. He lives in he lives in the UK. His name is Chris Witten, and he um, drummed for Dire Straits. Oh yes, yeah. So you know, I I I you know didn't know him from the band. I just knew him as a sort of an online friend, and we chatted and chatted. And so I followed you know follow along. And at one point, you know. I said, well, were you over in New York? He goes, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. He goes, I tried out for the contortions. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I went to this party. I'm like, what party? He goes, oh, it was this party, and it was up, maybe Debbie Harry was there. I'm like, what? So I went back to my contact sheet thinking, yeah, I don't see him. And so then he uh, posted his first, like, overseas, like, visa card or something when he went to play in Spain at uh, – you know, like a, a military base. And I looked at the picture. I went, oh, my God. And it gave me chills. And I went back to my contact sheet. And I'm like, he's in this frame. He's in this frame. He's in this frame, this frame, this frame. Obviously, I found him interesting. 
because I photographed him repeatedly. And that's the thing I think, well, to me, he was just, he was interesting to me. He didn't yes. have, he wasn't familiar to me. He didn't, I didn't know him. I just thought he looked interesting. And so I have him. He's in the book. Fantastic. Know? That is so great, isn't it? <laughs> Such a lovely yeah. bit. Yes, I, I could imagine. Yes, I mean, it will be fantastic when it comes out and published. I think it's the 1st of March, isn't it? So, you know, the, so. the interest. Have you just briefly, do you have kind of a launch and um, a, a, a night that's going um, to be? A launch. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things. I'm going to find, I want to just show you really quick. Uh, there are a lot of things that come up, like, um, here, look, take a peek. Oh, yes. Okay. There you go. So, um, a launch. You know, with, when you do everything yourself, there is this kind of like, um, oh, there's so many things I have to do to get this book out. Oh, I should just like focus on one thing at a time and actually get it completed. So, um, you know, getting the book um, to the printer, going through all the, you know, proofing stages with the, uh, production people, making some decisions about the cover and the materials. There are a lot of things that are, you know, outside my quote unquote wheelhouse that I was like, I have to make these choices, but I don't really know. I guess this will be good enough, you know? And so now there's all the like selling, um, selling it and wholesaling it and how to get it to England and who's like a distributor to deal with and oh, when am I going to do a launch party and what's that going to be like? And um, so there will be a launch. Uh, so because I write, I write in a magical thinking way, launch party, March or something like that. And then eventually I make it happen. Right. So I'll find a place and I'll have a party and um, I'll, pin up some big Xeroxes on the wall and fight people and see who comes. That's going to be fantastic. It's going to be amazing, isn't it? It'll be I very hope so. I hope so. You know, I just want to see the book in the right people's hands and people that appreciate it and understand, you know, that it's, these things are all connected, you know, and if you, um, if you want to know about this time, this is not the only book. And uh, every book that you get, whether it's, you know, Richard Bach's Mug Club book or it's Godless's, you know, History is Made at Night. Like they they give you little, it's like a little riv river or a stream running into a river. Yes. And, you know, it. the more you know, the the more accurate your understanding of uh, the subject is. Indeed. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Julia Gorton for giving me the time. Talking about her new book, Nowhere, New York, I will give you the link um, of how to purchase the publication. It is stunning, by the way, so uh, I'm not just saying that. It is an absolutely gripping and uh, fascinating publication of incredible photographs and text as well. Anyway, um, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.